Acts 17, 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with its inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha Church. We are glad you're here with us. My name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders here, and one of the privileges of being an elder at Hiawatha is we get to preach a couple times a year. It's always a joy for me to be here. I love preaching, but today is especially exciting for me. Today is my anniversary. Not marriage, I'm single, but 24 years ago to the date today, 24 years ago, the 28th of July was not a Sunday, it was a Friday. 24 years ago, on July 28th, was the first time I ever preached publicly. It was at a camp. I was a teenager then. So, you all get to celebrate my 24th anniversary of preaching today. Congratulations. No gifts are necessary. Thank you. All right, so we are about two-thirds of the way through the book of Acts, finishing up Acts 17 today. And thank you, Heidi, for reading that passage. Uh, it's kind of nice when the passages are longer to have someone else do the reading of the passage. So thank you for that. So Acts 17, 16 through 34, the object of your worship. All right, 
let's get into it. So, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now that picture is a, a more modern picture of Athens. You can see the scaffolding there. But right there, that is the main temple that was in Athens. This is the high point of the city. The main part of the city would be down where I'm standing. As you walked up, this was the high point of the city, and that was the main temple. And uh, it is the Pantheon. But a little bit about Athens. Athens was a powerful city-state back in antiquity. It was a center for the arts, for learning and philosophy. It was the home of Plato's Academy and Aristotle's uh, Lycium. It was widely referred to as the birthplace of democracy. In uh, Athenian political and philosophical thought, that's the first place democracy was ever talked about in some of those initial things. And you've got the Parthenon right there, which is a temple to Athena, Athens, Athena. That's either where the city gets its name or where Athena gets its name. Uh, historians disagree on which came first. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and knowledge and also of war and also of handcraft, like art and some of that type of stuff. And just to be clear, throughout this sermon, just the nature of it and what Athens was and what Paul's talking about, there, I'm going to be talking about some different Greek and Roman and Norse gods. But just to be clear, they're not actual gods. There is one god. So, Just to be absolutely clear on that. But that's just a little background on Athens. And then, uh, what else does it say? That Paul saw the city was full of idols. Now, when you hear the word idol, you might think of something like this. A little gold, a figurine made of some precious metal or wood or something like that, carved in the image of people or animals or something else in nature that people bow down to and worship. Now, if that's your definition of an idol, that's not an incorrect definition of an idol, but it's a very incomplete definition of an idol. So, a more general definition, an idol is anything other than God that we worship. So, an idol can be something like this, but it can be anything. It doesn't even have to be something physical. It can be an ideal or an emotion or uh, anything. An idol is anything other than God that we worship. And we'll talk more about that uh, when we get to the altar to the unknown God. So, Paul is waiting in Athens. He sees that the city is full of idols and what's his response to that? His spirit was provoked within him. People of Hiawatha, what provokes your spirit? What are the things in life that provoke your spirit, that get you stirred up, that you're passionate about? What are the things that provoke your spirit? And when your spirit is provoked, whatever that is, what's your reaction to that? How do you react? Is there action that you take, emotions that you feel... What's your reaction when your spirit is provoked? Let's look at Paul's reaction. So he sees that the city's full of idols that provokes his spirit within him, and he reacts. What's his reaction? He talks to people. He reasons and converses with the people in Athens. Where does he do it? In the synagogue and in the marketplace, in the main places where people would go and meet. So the synagogue is the place for the Jews and other devout non-Jewish followers of uh, the God of the Old Testament. That's where they would go to worship. It was also kind of a uh, 
meeting place where they would go. There would be events there, a place to fellowship with people, connect with people during the week. So that's a place he could go. He knew there'd be a lot of people, people receptive to hearing him talk about this, especially because he's going to be talking about things from the Old Testament, about the God that they believe in. And then also in the marketplace. So for those who weren't Jewish, who would never step foot in the synagogue, the marketplace was kind of the center of town, the town square where you would go. There were shops there. So you'd go there to get food. You'd go there to connect with people. You'd go there to hear the news that was going on, to meet your friends. So it was a place where you would do business. It was a place where you would get together and hang out. It was like a combination workspace, coffee shop type of thing. So between those two places, he could cover most of the people in the city. He went to where the people were gathered to talk to them. And who did he talk to? He talked with the Jews and devout persons in the synagogue, of course. And then in the marketplace with anyone who happened to be there. Whoever happened to be around that would listen to him, he talked to. But that's not also all. Also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, he conversed with them. And remember, I said Athens was known for philosophy. There were a lot of schools of philosophical thought that had come out of Athens and that still existed in Athens at this time to varying degrees. So there were a lot of people who wanted to talk a lot of different philosophical things. So Paul would have a willing audience for those things. He talked with all the groups of people who would listen to him. But he's not just talking in general. He's not just talking about whatever topic of conversation they might have in mind that they want to cover. It says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was specifically talking about Jesus, about his life, his death on the cross for sin, and his resurrection from the grave that proved that his death was effective to conquer sin and bring us back to God, who were far from God. So people of Hiawatha, whatever provokes your spirit, whatever gets you riled up, when your spirit's provoked, is this the type of response you have? Is the gospel part of that response? Like it was part of Paul's response. His spirit was provoked, and he could have said a lot of different things and taken conversations a lot of different directions, but he went right to the gospel and he went right to Jesus. Because he saw in the midst of all that idolatry, that was the most important thing people needed to hear. So he talks about this, people listen to it, and they think, hmm, this is interesting. We want to hear more about this. You're saying some things, we don't really understand everything. Can you give us like a clear presentation of this? We want to hear this. So they bring him to the Areopagus. So this is a picture from Athens. This is the Areopagus. So Paul would have been probably somewhere on the top here. Over on this side, you can't see there's a... Um, almost like a little amphitheater type area, so he might have been there. There's some space down here, but somewhere in here, this was where he would have gone. And a cool thing, if you ever find your way to Athens and see this, you can't see it in the picture, but right here, there is a metal plaque that's uh, connected to the stone, and it has in Greek the text of what Paul says here in Acts 17. So if you go and you know Greek, you can read it. If you go and you don't know Greek, you can look at it and know what it is, but you won't be able to read it. <laughs> It'll be Greek to you. <laughs> so, this was something cool that I learned that I didn't know about this. You may have heard of this passage and heard it called uh, Paul's Sermon on Mars Hill. And you might think, why in the world is this called Mars Hill? Like, this is the Areopagus. So, Ari there is Ares, the Greek god of war. 
His Roman counterpart, the Roman god of war, is Mars. So that's why they call it Mars Hill. So fun fact, doesn't really have much to do with the sermon, but kind of interesting. So this place functioned as a couple different things. It functioned as the meeting place for Athens' high court. So if you were convicted of a capital crime and on trial for that, this is where the trial would take place for murder or anything like that. It was also a place uh, in the amphitheater area down over there where you would go for public readings, for discourses, uh, for speeches, to see plays, things like that. So some poet has a new poem, they would go to Athens and read it there. There's a new play, it would be performed there. Someone wants to give some speech about some philosophical thing, that's where it was. So it's uh, not unexpected that they would bring Paul here. And it's interesting, if you've read or are familiar with Acts up to this point, everywhere Paul goes, he basically gets put on trial or kicked out of town. And it's interesting, so this is a place where people would go just to hear new ideas, see new things that have been created, but also a place where trials happen. So there's some of that interest. It's like, okay, did they bring Paul here just because they were curious? Or now he's kind of proclaiming these foreign gods, or are they maybe putting him on trial a little bit for this? And it could be a little of both, we don't know for sure. But that's what this place was. So they bring Paul here. And then they say, you've got this new teaching. We haven't heard it before. It's strange. We don't really understand it. Tell, it to, tell us more. Explain this to us. We want to understand what this means. And Luke, the author of Acts, writes, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's how it is today. People want to hear new things, experience new things, see new things. Why is it that they make sequels to movies? That they make expansions to games? Why do they do those things? Why does an artist continue to put out music year after year? Many reasons, but one of them is the old, the thing that's new becomes old. And then eventually you don't want the old anymore, you want something new. And there might be pieces of the old you want, but you want more, you want something new. And that's how it was in Athens. So they'd hear one thing from one philosophical school of thought, think, wow, that's pretty cool. Go with that for a while, but then it got old. And they wanted something new. People of Hiawatha, Jesus is the last new thing you will ever need. And it's interesting, because Jesus is both old and new, because he's God. So he existed before time itself, before this earth. So he's older. He's the oldest thing. He's always been. But also, he's new. He was incarnated. He took on flesh. He became a man. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He did something new that had never been done before. He brought us back to God in a way only he could accomplish. So Jesus is the old thing that is new. And he's the last new thing you will ever need. He's the only new thing that never grows dull, that never grows stale, that you never get tired of. Because he's God, which means he's infinite. So no matter how much of him you know, no matter how much of him you see, there's always more. And it's not different. It's not like, oh, I thought God was like this and Jesus was like this, but suddenly I'm going to find out someday he was the opposite of what I thought. But it's new pieces of it. It's like being married. You get married and you know your spouse to some degree. And then as you're married to them and you live with them over time, you get to know them better and more deeply. And there are pieces of them that stay the same through that marriage but you see more of it and you see it in different ways. And so it's like, oh, there's something new there. And that new thing is kind of old, but there are new bits to it too. 
Jesus is the last new thing we will ever need. So Paul's here. He's about to explain what he's been talking about. And there are some really cool things in this. Obviously, it's the gospel, so it's just cool in general. But some cool things that we can look at and that can help us as we interact with people today in the world, whether that's at work or with friends as we hang out, whatever that might be, but people who aren't believers. So let's look at it. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So notice how he starts. He doesn't start by saying, okay, I've seen all these altars, and these are all false gods. This is all just worthless. You need to get rid of this. Let me tell you about the real God. There's only one. He starts with something that's in some ways affirming, that draws them in. He says, here, let me compliment you. I see that you're very religious. I see all these altars, all these temples, all these objects of worship. And as he's saying this, standing on that rock, so if I'm standing on the rock like this, behind me would be that hill from the slide I showed with Athens with the huge temple on top to Athena. And then, as I'm on the rock, as I look down this way, would be the place probably that he had been wandering by the marketplace that had all these other temples and statues. So as he's standing here saying, I see that you're very religious. I see it down in front of me, and I see it behind me. I see you've invested time resources, all these things. I see that you're very religious. So he says something that in some ways is kind of affirming to them. It's a little surprising. And then he goes on. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So I said before, an idol is anything that we worship that's not God. And you might say, what is worship exactly? I've heard that word. I kind of know what it means, but I don't really have a good idea. So, a brief, incomplete definition of worship, but a fairly good summary one. To worship something is to give thanks to it, to serve it, to glorify it. And to glorify means to extol the virtues of something, to praise something. People of Hiawatha, what are your objects of worship? What are the things that you give thanks to, that you serve, that you glorify? As people pass along in your life, as they observe you, what would they observe as your objects of worship? As Paul passed along in Athens, he observed the objects of worship. What would people observe as your objects of worship as they passed along? Would they observe Jesus as your object of worship? Or would it be something else? And for all of us as believers, there's some of that both end. We do worship God. We do worship Christ. But... Sin still remains and we still struggle with it. So we still worship idols. We still have the idea that we can do it ourselves. We still want to do it ourselves so we can boast in ourselves. What are your objects of worship? What do you serve? What do you give thanks to? What do you glorify? What commands the majority of your time, your thought, your activities, and your conversations? What are your objects of worship? Paul continues, so he's given them the semi-compliment, I perceive in every way you're very religious. I observed all these objects of worship. And then he goes on, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Look at what Paul does here. He uses their pre-existing belief as an inroad for the gospel. He takes something that they already believe, that they already value, that they are already invested in. And he looks at what piece of this can I use 
to slip in the gospel and move in a gospel direction as I speak to them. So he takes something that they already had, a pre-existing belief, and uses it as an inroad for the gospel. Like Peter was saying before the offering song, they've got all these altars and all these temples to all these different gods, and they're thinking, well, you know, maybe there's one we missed. We better do one to the unknown god, just cover all our bases. And what a perfect inroad for Paul. Like, okay, you've got a temple to the unknown god? I know that god. Let me tell you about him. So first, Paul gives them kind of the semi-affirmation. Then he looks for something that's pre-existing that he can use as an inroad for the gospel. But then, he takes that pre-existing belief and tears it down and replaces it with the gospel, with the true God. He says, Therefore your worship is unknown, I will proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And remember where he's standing. As he's standing, he sees this huge temple behind him up on this hill on the highest point of the city. He sees down below a ton of temples and altars and people doing acts of worship, serving these gods. And he says, yeah, all these temples, God doesn't live in any of those. All this work of your hands that you've done, God isn't served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from you. He's the one who gives us all things. He doesn't need to receive things from us. So Paul starts off and he's like, yeah, I see what you've got here. You're very religious. You've got this altar to the unknown God. But let me tell you about the real God and how the real God is not like your gods. And all these things you've built for these gods, these aren't things God wants. These aren't things God uses. That's not how God is. God is not going to receive from you because you built him this beautiful temple or this altar or crafted this image. He gives to you. As believers, usually we're pretty good at one of those two things, but not both of those. We're either usually pretty good at looking at something in culture and picking out how it mirrors or images or whispers or reflects the gospel. But if we're good at that, we tend to not be good at tearing it down. So we'll affirm people like some movie or some book or some song or some piece of art and say, yes, there are echoes of the gospel in this. This is like the gospel or like Jesus in this way and this way and this way. But then we won't go to that next step and tear it down to replace it with the true gospel. Or we're good at tearing down, but not at finding that common ground first. And we'll say, oh, did you see that new movie? Oh, no, I didn't go see that because that's just false. That says things that aren't true. That's not how God is. That's not what the gospel proclaims. And those are true statements. But now you haven't given that common ground with them. It's unlikely they're going to listen to you because now you're just attacking them. So as I was uh, reading through that and explaining that, you may have thought of something from culture. And probably most of you thought of this. Maybe not. So I was. So this is a, pic, a uh, representation of a scene from the movie Avengers: Infinity War. I was going to do something from Endgame, but figured since it was newer, I'd do an older movie, so as not to have to do spoilers. So I'm just very briefly. I'm going to give kind of a modern example of what it looks like to go through and do this kind of finding common ground and tearing down. And I could literally have picked anything for this. I could have picked any movie that exists, any song 
any book, any piece of art, any painting, any sculpture, anything, and you can do this with it. I picked this one, one, because it's so big culturally, it's likely a lot of people are going to be somewhat familiar with it. Two, it's popular in culture still. I work in uh, the place I work, there are discussions about the Marvel movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, probably every other day that people want to have with me, um, which is great when I'm doing the parts of my job I don't particularly like to do. Not so great when I'm doing the parts I like. But, so, uh, the bad guy on the right there who's purple is named Thanos, if you're not familiar with this at all. The guy who's floating in the air is Thor, based on the Norse god of Thunder Thor. He's supposed to be uh, the Marvel Universe's representation of that god, and the weapon he's holding is this axe that he made that he's supposed to kill Thanos with. So Thanos is the bad guy. He's basically trying to rewrite reality in the universe in his own image. Thor doesn't want that to happen. He's trying to stop him. So some ways Thor is like Jesus. Thor hates evil, like Jesus does. He fights against it. He's about to fight Thanos. He's willing to sacrifice his life. And in the movie Avengers Infinity War, he actually almost dies twice. Once at the beginning, and then once about two-thirds of the way through or halfway through when he's trying to make that axe. Because without it, he doesn't have something strong enough to defeat Thanos. And he's willing to sacrifice his life to make this happen. And he almost does. And... In this movie, up to this point in Marvel's movies, he's the most powerful hero. So just like Jesus is the most powerful, he's the most powerful. He's far stronger than the other heroes. But Thor is also unlike Jesus in many ways. A few of them. So Thor has a plan, but he doesn't really know what's going on and what's going to happen. He's not really in control of the situation. There are times where he's just reacting. He's hoping he gets to the right place. He's hoping he gets to do something before Thanos can do something. But he's not sure what's going to happen. He's not sure what's going on. Also, he's not ultimately more powerful than evil. He and Thanos are portrayed as being kind of equal opposites, which is not true of Christ. If you've ever thought of Jesus as Satan and Satan as equal opposites, that is not true. Jesus is far above all other beings. Satan's equal opposite would be Michael, one of the uh, top angels. But Jesus has no equal opposite. He's above that. He's beyond that. So by showing Thor as not strictly more powerful than evil, that is unlike Christ. And then, spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie, Thor fails. He fails to kill Thanos. He fails to defeat evil. And he does it because he makes a mistake. He has an opportunity and he seizes that opportunity and it looks like he accomplishes his goal, but he fails because he did something wrong. Jesus Christ did not fail when he set out to defeat evil. Jesus Christ did not make mistakes. Jesus Christ was not living on earth thinking, well, I hope eventually I get to the cross. I'm not really sure what's going on, but hopefully it'll work out. No, he had a plan and he was in control. And that's not the only way you could go through this, but that's just a brief example of in today's culture with things that are culturally relevant and pre prevalent that people attach to and worship to some degree. That's one way that you can use that as an inroad for the gospel. You can say, yeah, you know, Thor represents this Norse god. And in some ways, he's kind of like Jesus, the real god. But there are a lot of ways that he's not like Jesus. And let me tell you about that. There's a lot of ways he's a much better god than Jesus. Because if you come here and all you do is show the comparisons between them, then people walk away thinking, oh, Jesus is like Thor. So that's great. Like Jesus is really strong and he's good and he hates evil, but he might not win. 
he might not be more powerful. He might not really be in control or be able to help me because he might not really know what's going on. And he might make mistakes. Like he might even be strong enough to defeat evil, but he might do the wrong thing. If you leave people like that, you've done them a huge inservice. You've done something ungodly because you've given them a picture of God that's false and that's going to be disappointing. But the flip side is true. If someone comes up to me and they're like, oh, Jesse, did you see Avengers Infinity War? Thor was pretty cool in that. And I'm like, oh, no, I didn't see that. Thor just represents a false image of God. Which is true, he does. He is a false image of God. God is not like Thor. But you can use that as an inroad and say, yeah, I did see that. There were some things that were cool and some things that kind of reminded me of Jesus. Like Jesus is passionate about destroying evil and he hates it just like Thor did. Jesus wants to protect his people just like Thor did. But let me tell you about how Jesus is better than Thor. You know at the end when Thor fails because he totally messed up? Jesus didn't totally mess up. When he got to the end, he succeeded and did what he accomplished. And at the end, Thor couldn't save people from dying and evil destroyed them. But Jesus did. Jesus saved people from dying. And not just dying, he saved people from eternal death. He saved people from separation with God. So that's just a brief example of one way that could go. But we tend to be good at one of those two things, of finding the inroads and building that up or of tearing it down. But if you're not doing both, you're doing a disservice to people. And that's what Jesus did with us. He was incarnated. He came to us. He found an inroad to the gospel. What was the inroad? To take on flesh, to become human. That was his inroad. He became like us. But then what was the end of that? He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. So he became like us, but he was unlike us too. He did the things we couldn't do. He brought us the salvation we couldn't bring to ourselves. He reconciled us to God when we were his enemies because we couldn't do it on our own. Jesus was like us in some ways and then unlike us in all the ways that mattered. So, enough of that. Continuing with Paul's speech. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. If you're sitting here this morning, it's not just coincidence. Whether you think you just randomly happened up here or you came here intentionally. The fact that you're alive in 2019 on July 28th, are sitting in the Hiawatha Church building as part of God's design. What does Paul say here? That, Paul, that God determines when people live and where they live. God determined that you would be alive today, that you would be somewhere in the Twin Cities area, and that you would come here today. That was God's determination. That was his choice. And why was that? That we should seek God and perhaps feel our way towards him and find him. Everyone's seeking. And people are seeking God. Many of them don't know it. They would never say that. They would say they're seeking other things. But the things they're seeking can ultimately only be fulfilled in God. And so in the world, as people stumble around, as they seek for fulfillment, as they seek for worth, as they seek for value, as they seek for satisfaction, what they're seeking is Jesus Christ. But they don't know it. But there are things that God has determined in their lives that are inroads for the gospel that we can use. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you don't believe in Jesus, maybe you actively have just rejected that belief or maybe you've never heard it before. You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is all new to me. 
just like the people Paul was talking to. Know that you're not here accidentally. You're not here just because of your whim. God determined that you would be here today to hear me preach and hear the gospel. Not because I'm so great and you needed to hear me, but I happen to be the one preaching this morning. He wants you to hear that so as you stumble around, as you feel your way towards him, that you would find him. Be encouraged. As we stumble around, as it can feel like you're stumbling in the dark, that you can't find it, that you keep searching and you can't find it. Yet God is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Look at how that's worded, how Paul words that. He says, he is not far from us. He doesn't say we're not far from him. So as we're the ones that are stumbling around and seeking, as Paul said, that you would stumble and seek and perhaps find him. Ultimately, it's not actually us that find God, it's God that finds us. As we're stumbling around and we don't know where he is and we feel like he's far from us, he's actually not far from us. If you're here this morning and you have not yet believed, know that Jesus Christ is not far from you, whether you feel far from him or not. If you're here and you are a believer, but you feel far from God today, know that Jesus Christ is not far from you. Even when we feel far from him, he's not far from us. He is the one who seeks us out. He is the one who brings us to him. He's the one who brings us back when we wander. He's the one who's near and comforts when we need comfort and we feel like he is far from us. Be encouraged, Hiawatha. Jesus Christ is not far from you. And he is the one who comes to us. While we're running from him, he comes to us. Whether that's before we believe or in our belief, in the times we turn to idols, he comes to us and he woos us back. Notice Paul here, even after he's begun to tear down their system of belief and replace it with the gospel, he's still using things that are meaningful to him. These two quotes, in him we, move, we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is quoting a Greek philosopher and a Greek poet. And the Greek poet, that second quote, that poet was from Athens and was trained in poetry and philosophy and things in Athens. So he's quoting things that they would resonate with. Someone from their own city. They're one of their local celebrities, so to speak. And also another Greek philosopher and poet. He's using things that have meaning to them and showing how they're actually, they can be talking about something bigger that's better than what this is talking about. The, uh, the writings that they're quoting from, we have today. One is like a long poem and one is... Uh, kind of a philosophical, poetic discourse type thing. But as you read it, you've got these lines, it's like, oh yeah, that's pretty good. You know, that's kind of biblical. In him we live and move and have our being. We are indeed his offspring. If you read the rest of those, very unbiblical. Not the God of the Bible. But Paul still uses this piece of it because he knows it's an inroad. But then he continues to make sure that he tears that down and replaces it with the gospel so people don't leave and go thinking, oh, well, I'll just read Aratus's epic poem, because Paul quoted that. So that must be what God's really like. He doesn't do that. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. So here's kind of this final tearing down. He says, okay, I've taken this inroad. 
I've acknowledged your religiosity and used that to come to you. But just to be clear at the end, all these things you've carved, all these statues in gold and silver, all these altars of marble, all these temples that you've built, this is not what God is like. This is not what God is like. Do not think that God, that Jesus Christ, the divine being, is like these things. He is not. He is much better than them, far superior to them. Verses 30 and 31. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul comes, his spirit is provoked within him because of the idols. So he starts talking with people. He starts preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection. People hear it, they're curious, they want to hear more. He gives this discourse, acknowledging some of what they've done, but then tearing it down to replace it with the gospel. And now as he's wrapping up, the final thing he says, it's like, all right, so in the past, God overlooked ignorance. All this idol worship you have going on, all these temples you've built, this was ignorance because it's the unknown God. You did not know the God of the Bible. You did not know Jesus Christ. But now I've told it to you. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He will no longer accept your ignorance. And the reason he demands repentance is because Jesus Christ is going to come back and judge the world in righteousness. Jesus is the man that he has appointed. And you know what? No matter how much religiosity you have, no matter how many sacrifices you make, no matter how many times you pray to that gold statue, you are not going to be judged as righteous when God returns based on that. He's going to judge the world in righteousness and the only righteous one is Jesus Christ. If you're not trusting in Jesus to provide you his righteousness, you are not going to stand in God's judgment. You are not righteous enough. God overlooked sin before. Now he commands repentance because he's going to judge the world. He has fixed the day and he's given assurance that it's going to happen by raising Jesus from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Aragapiite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What are the reactions? Three reactions. Some mocked, some were curious, they didn't believe, but they wanted to hear more, and some believed. Believers of Hiawatha, as we interact with the world, as we interact with people who don't believe, as we find inroads through culture and through things that they value, through their objects of worship and their systems of belief, even if, even if they wouldn't label it like that, we're going to get these same three reactions. When we talk about Jesus and his death and resurrection, some people are going to mock us. Some people are going to believe. Some people are going to say, I'm not sure what I think about that yet, but I think I want to hear more. We should not be surprised. We should not be disappointed. We should not feel like we've failed when we get those three reactions. Those are the reactions Paul gets. Those are the reactions Jesus got in the Gospels. If God himself gets those reactions, we shouldn't expect to get a better return than Jesus got. We should expect those same reactions. People of Hiawatha, in conclusion, what are your objects of worship? Are you worshiping Jesus Christ or are you worshiping other things? Are you searching for the unknown God? If you're in this room and you're not a believer, are you searching for the unknown God? If so, guess what? You just heard about him. 
And he's a God far superior to anything else you will find. Any other new thing you find will eventually become old and stale and boring, and you'll need to replace it. Jesus Christ never will. He's the last new thing you'll ever need, and he's the best new thing that there is. Is the gospel your response to idolatry? When your spirit is provoked within you, when you see idolatry, is your response the gospel? Is your response to proclaim Jesus Christ, to proclaim his death and his resurrection to those people? Do you use people's pre-existing beliefs as inroads for the gospel? And then show them that the gospel is better than those things. The gospel is not equal to those things, it's superior. The gospel is better. So, this is from the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indy's about to take the statue. He gets it, if you've seen the movie. He has to get through all these traps. He eventually gets out. So he goes through all this work to get this idol. He obtains it, and he uh, doesn't die, which you think he's going to do several times. But what happens as soon as he escapes with it? Immediately it's taken from him. Someone else takes it. He doesn't get any of the benefit from it to sell it, back to the museum where he works and get some money for all his effort. He goes through all this work, obtains this idol, and ends up empty-handed at the end. For all of us, for myself and all of us in this room, if your objects of worship are anything other than Jesus Christ, you're going to go through a whole bunch of effort, and at the end of that effort, you're going to end up empty-handed. All that effort will be wasted. All of that will be disappointing you will end up empty-handed. Only with Jesus can you end up with something that lasts and satisfies and doesn't try and kill you along the way. So, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are better, that you are the superior object of worship. You are the only one worthy of being worshipped. And not just because you're God, but you provide better things. You are more satisfying. You are more long-lasting. You never grow old. Thank you, Jesus, that when all of us were stumbling around, wondering about this unknown God that we'd never heard of, that you came to us in our darkness and our blindness and our sin, and you saved us, and you found us, and you brought us from death to life, and you brought us to your Father, and you gave us love that we had never known before, a relationship with God that we had never known before. I pray for all, everyone in this room, God, who's not a believer, that they would see that you are the unknown God that they need to know. And that they can do that right now. That you are the one who is determined that they would be here this morning. That you are searching for them, that you want them. And for all of us who are believers, I pray God that you would help us to see those inroads to the gospel in people's lives and use those inroads to point to the better gospel, to point to you, Jesus. Amen.